was over a thousand years before Christ was born. An Israelite woman named Hannah lived in the territory of Ephraim in the Promised Land. Hannah's home in the hill country was relatively close to the tabernacle at that point situated at a place called Shiloh. And she would travel there with her husband Elkanah year by year to worship the Lord. Hannah was a devout woman. Hannah was also a sad woman. She longed to bear a child, but that strong desire went unfulfilled year after year. Now, on one pilgrimage to Shiloh, Hannah was deeply distressed about her infertility, and she wept bitterly, pouring her heart out in prayer to the Lord. 1 Samuel 1.11 says this, And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Think of that prayer. She vowed a vow to give her son all the days of his life to the Lord. In other words, she vowed to give her child to serve a God's sanctuary for life at the tabernacle there with the high priest Eli. God, we know, answered her prayer and Hannah kept her vow. After she weaned her son, she brought him to the high priest and Samuel served at the tabernacle the rest of his life. Now, as familiar as this story is to those of us who have biblical background, this story is alien to us culturally. It's completely alien. What Hannah did with Samuel was even unusual in her day. What was not unusual in her day was vowing a vow and vowing a vow even that included a person. This was not unusual at all. In ancient times, devout people of every religion made vows to their gods. This is what you did. A vow was essentially a promise that a worshiper would do something or give something to a god if that god would bless the worshiper in a certain way. So we have a very good illustration of that here. If you will in the future bless me with a son... I vow that I will. And she follows through on that vow. Now, you can imagine, this is commonplace to vow a vow that if the gods, your God, would give you what you are seeking, that you would then do something in return. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand the dangers of that the dangers that can come from that way of thinking. A lot of bad can come from the practice. People bartering with their God. If I just give a little bit more, maybe God will give me what I want. We can imagine the danger of putting all kinds of people and property at serious risk. If you will give me what 
I want, I will take my child and sacrifice it to you. Sacrifices bore this girl to you, or something along those lines. And the implications of what could come, one person seeking something so desperately as to cause all types of trouble to others around them. Well, how does God deal with His nation Israel in the midst of such a context? The God of Israel, interestingly, does not restrict His people from vowing vows. He did not eliminate this expression of devotion, even though it was very twisted in the world in which they lived. Nonetheless, God permitted His people to vow vows. He did, however, protect His people from the harm that rash vows could cause while also protecting His holiness. Now, we've been here before in our journey through Leviticus. We're staring again at a chapter that seems to have nothing to do with us. We don't vow vows like this. We wouldn't even know what to do. It doesn't work. It's not our culture. It's not our situation. It has nothing to do with us. But we've, of course, learned, haven't we, again and again, don't say that in the face of Leviticus. Don't say it has nothing to do with me. We don't draw that conclusion. But, again, to honor the integrity of the text we'll consider this strange world of religious vows for a while. But as we tour this ancient museum, we find no dusty artifacts. Rather, what we find in this chapter is the very heartbeat of God. We'll see that the chapter is less about vows, in fact, and how to make them, Frankly, if I could put it this way, it's more about how to get out of them. Once you've made a vow, how to exit the vow, in a sense. That might be a bit overstated, but it introduces to us this theme of redemption. You can make a vow, but then you can redeem the thing vowed, or the person vowed. And so, in a sense... Vow that person, vow that thing, but by paying money in some situations, you can get away from those implications. It's fascinating. But let's work through the museum for a moment. We find, first of all, the redemption of persons in verse 1, chapter 27, Leviticus 27, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons. Here again is the gap. They would hear that and know exactly what he's talking about. We hear that and go, Who's doing the valuing? And why are they doing this valuing? And what is the valuation of persons? What's even going on here? This valuation of persons, it's, it strikes us as somewhat cryptic. But think Hannah and Samuel here. A vow is made to give a person to the service of the sanctuary. That's a pretty good picture of what is being addressed here. Such dedications were far more commonly made than they were actually fulfilled. That is, it was typical for a Hannah to dedicate her son to the sanctuary 
meaning in her mind that when a son was born, she would come to the sanctuary and she would pay money in the equivalent of her son as a slave and then some perhaps, as, as we work this out. That's how she might be thinking. She would, what do we say? She would redeem him. To pay the equivalent of what it would cost to purchase him as a slave, that would have been normal. And so fittingly, the valuations we now consider were in keeping with the price of a slave. That's how these valuations are established. So when you, there's a special vow, and this is unique. No, God's not asking for it. But there's a special vow, this unique vow. One's heart is moved to relate to God in this way. Then, verse 3, the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. Why does God, in our day, we need to ask, why does God place more value on men than women? Remember verse 1. This is what God says. Why 50 shekels for a man and 30 shekels for a woman? Why does God value men more than women? Well, the answer, of course, in our times is because the God of the Bible is sexist. God is male, therefore male is God. Israel's religion is calibrated to promote male dominance. That's why 50 men, 30 women. Well, this, of course, is the finger-wagging answer that our culture chides us to accept. The reasoning that any unequal number or requirement between men and women is rooted in sexism, always. Well, let's understand... This text, this is not sexism, this is realism. First, we will see below that a 59-year-old woman is valued more highly, in fact, twice as high as a 60-year-old man. So any thought that that's what's here, giving more value to men than women, is shot right out of the water in the text itself. But realistically, the work a man would typically do in the prime of life at the sanctuary was more physically taxing and never interrupted by childbirth or compromised by menstruation. This is just the reality of it. Every man and every woman could bake bread for the tabernacle equally, that is physically. But most women would not fare as well cutting the wood for the fires, hauling that wood, lugging the beams of the tabernacle where that was appropriate, or hauling the carcass of an ox outside the camp to burn it. This would have been the typical way, realistically, that such evaluations were drawn. It's just realism. As with sex, age also affected the valuation based upon the work that was required and what could typically be accomplished. So male, female, as well 
the young and the old. Verse 5, if the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. This is not in any way intended to be something against women, something against the young, or something against the aged. It's just realism. It's just the facts of the situation that they're in and I think those that would hijack such statements of Scripture, such sections of the Bible, to conform to this world's doctrines are just on the wrong page, just dealing with the wrong thing here. It's not what's up, what God is up to. But it's just realism of how this work would be done. And as merciful and flexible as this system was, these were high prices to pay. So one is devoted to the sanctuary, a vow is made, they can be redeemed with the payment of this money. This would be the valuation that would be placed upon that individual if one is so devoted to the sanctuary. But what about those who don't have the money? Verse 8, And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him, and the priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. This is just mercy. This is just God's mercy to help people in a particular context not make vows that they regretted for the rest of their life. These are the valuations of people. We look then at the redemption of animals, beginning in verse 9. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. An animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord means a clean animal suitable for sacrifice. If a person vows to give such an animal, vows to give, let's say, a lamb to God in sacrifice, no redemption is possible. Because this is a sacrificial animal, it's devoted to the Lord, God claims this animal, and there's no redemption. The animal must be sacrificed to the Lord. Verse 10, He shall not exchange it or make substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. If the one making the vow then comes to believe the gift is too much, he must not exchange an inferior animal for the good one, or both of them will be forfeited. And so holy are such animals that the worshiper cannot even replace a bad animal with a good one. A superior, you say, well, well, God would take the superior animal. No, this one is devoted to God. As a sacrificial, clean animal, this belongs to the Lord. It's that holy. It's drama, doesn't affect our daily life, it's not something we put into practice, of course, but think of it, think of what's being taught us here. This is mine. It's devoted to me and to the sacrifice that honors God. Clean, sacrificial animals are holy and so must not be redeemed. 
verse 11. And if it is any, and if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. And I think that means high value or lower value. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. An unclean animal, such as a donkey, let's say, could be very useful to the priests in their work. This process of slaughtering animals and burning them on the altar and taking out carcasses and all of this work was heavy work. It wasn't easy work. And so a donkey might be very useful to the priests in their work, but one who vowed to give a donkey to the sanctuary could redeem it by giving to the priest silver shekels worth 20% more than the assessed value of the donkey. Put yourself in that situation, and what does that mean? As you vow that you will give a donkey to the Lord and to the sanctuary, you know it doesn't have to go if you change your mind, but you will add 20% more to its value going to be fairly cautious about your vows. And that donkey, if it goes to the sanctuary, could be used as the priest intended whatever was helpful to them, putting it into work or using it in another way. We come at verse 14 to the redemption of houses. Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house... As a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad, high or low value, and the priest value, as he values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his once again. It shall return to him. Uh, this would be a house in the city, thus it could be used by the Levites or sold to support the sanctuary. But again... If the one making the vow changes their mind, then there's to be a 20% addition to the cost. The redemption of land is dealt with in verse 16. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates the field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. Hopefully we can take with us the information from last week and, and what the Jubilee is, this, this Sabbath uh, uh, I guess that'd be two weeks ago, but from the, the, this Sabbath 50-year jubilee where the land reverts back to the ancestral owner. So simply said, though we don't, aren't going to take time to work through all the nuances here and even some of the uh, debate as to exactly how this is all calculated, simply said, a field could be dedicated to the sanctuary with the valuation being calculated on two factors. One is the amount of grain the field can be expected to produce on annual average. There might be outcroppings of rock there. There may be varying factors that would change how much this field could produce. And the second valuation is based on this year of Jubilee, this every 50 year where the land would revert to the tribal owner because land belonged to God ultimately and it was his bequest to the people of Israel. 
So putting that together, it makes sense, and you can kind of understand how in the negotiations of such situations they'd be working these factors out. How much can it produce? How long till Jubilee? And the value is set at that place. Verse 19, And if he who dedicates a field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. So if the owner chooses to redeem the land, 20% more of its value are given to the priest. If he chooses not to redeem the land, it becomes an, ex, an ex, uh, exception to the Jubilee rule because it's given to the priests and it becomes a permanent possession of the sanctuary, even if the original owner leased it to another, is the idea. Verse 22, If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession... We should be catching what that means. It's not part of the ancestral bequest from God. And so he's really just ultimately leasing it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. And every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty garas shall make a shekel. So the point, he has leased a field that will revert to its ancestral owner in the year of Jubilee. And then this brief banking note here in verse 25. Coinage has not yet been invented, so you simply weighed out your silver, and that's how uh, the transactions took place. Standard weights and valuations, we learn, even in this simple line of verse, uh, this simple sentence of verse 25, they matter to God. They matter to God. He frowns on the wealthy and the powerful and on deceivers who prey on the innocent. And in his law, seeking to make sure that that doesn't happen. And those of us, his people who follow him, need to make sure of the same. That we don't use money, we don't use power, we don't use deceit to harm others financially. He's looking for all to be done decently and in order and with integrity. In verse 26, we deal with the, first, the redemption of the firstlings. 26 but a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. You cannot devote to God something that already belongs to Him. Why does the firstborn of all animals belong uniquely to God? This, of course, we're prepared for in the book of Exodus. That last tenth plague on Egypt... The firstborn were redeemed by God that night. And so all belonged to Him. Every firstborn had to be redeemed by offering a sacrifice in the place of the firstborn child or the firstborn animal. Verse 27, And if it is an unclean animal, 
an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. So a firstborn unclean animal could be given to the sanctuary service or redeemed with a sacrifice or redeemed with money or in the case of a donkey, for instance. If you did not want to sacrifice the lamb for this donkey, you could kill the donkey, Exodus indicates. But the firstborn always belonged to God, uniquely so. The next section addresses a distinct category translated here devoted things, verse 28, but no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. Devoted thing, the Hebrew harem, This was a special category of things so uniquely consecrated to God they could only be used for His service or destroyed. Anyone who compromised the dedication fell under the curse of God. And here again, an illustration might be most helpful to us than than even trying to understand the nuances of the text, and that's Achan. You remember as the Israelites went into the promised land, all of the cities there were under this ban, this harem. They were devoted entirely to God. There would be no spoils taken by the Israelites. All would be devoted to destruction, which was God's sovereign right in patient, long-enduring punishment of the Canaanites. In that scenario, what was devoted to God was not to be consumed by the people. It was God's, and it was to be respected that way. So no one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. shall surely be put to death. That is, this would apply to some convicts, but most obviously to the people of the land that God was giving Israel to conquer. So the last section then deals with tithes, a 10% that God established in Israel for the support of the sanctuary of the priests. Redemption of the tithes, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed or the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall, uh, uh, verse 32, and every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. The rabbis help us here to say that what took place was that the um, shepherd, let's take the example of a shepherd, he would bring all of the lambs together into into a corral, into a pen. Then their mothers would be outside of the pen, and then through a narrow passageway, a gate out of the pen, the shepherd would stand by that gate with a rod tipped in a die, and every tenth animal would be hit with that rod, touched with that rod, and, and so the die would be on that animal, that one would go to the tithe. 
to God, to the sanctuary, to the support of the Levites. And there were different ties and different ways of this work. But this, this simple way, whatever one that rod touched, it was the tenth one through, it was the twenty-one-th, twentieth one through, it was the thirtieth one through, they went to God. No substitution. The lambs could not be redeemed because they already belonged to God. And so the book ends. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Now a straightforward truth we can draw from this passage is first of all that very clearly God values integrity. He values the integrity of our verbal commitments of devotion to Him. Vows made should be vows kept. There's also a reminder here to, to not to speak rashly. The 20% additional cost to redeeming what was vowed is substantial. And so you would not want to act rashly. It is a gracious provision that God employs to insulate His children from the pain of rash vows. But it's also a reminder to watch our tongues. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 5, It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. But as believers under a new covenant, our orientation is not toward what we vow but it's toward what Christ has done and promised. We vow no sacrifice because Christ has paid it all. He is the final sacrifice for sin. And so in this sense, we are in a very different place. As the hymn says, Christ paid it all. All to Him we owe. But we owe it in a different way. We go about it in our relationship with Him in a different sense. And as New Covenant believers who need not make these formal vows as such, we are called to make commitments of devotion to God that we must remember to keep. And one of those vows we're very familiar with is the vow of lifelong devotion within marriage. Couples coming together to covenant for life as husband and wife make a vow before us. They take vows before the congregation and they speak their devotion to one another. God highly values our commitment to those vows. God is merciful. He forgives. But in this sense... There is to be no rash vow taken. And when a church comes alongside couples that are seeking marriage and and calls upon them to consider, to think about this, to talk with other people through this, it's not a judgment upon an individual saying, you don't know what you're doing. It's saying that this is a very serious vow. And you need to walk with God's people to consider that vow and to be sure that there are others in good spiritual standing before the Lord that can say, this is good. We believe this pleases the Lord. Not that we have omniscience, 
but in the sense that a community comes together and says, don't make, take this vow rashly. There is a vow of sorts in church membership. Again, we use the word covenant and for good reason, but it's a formal commitment to honor our responsibilities as members of the body of Christ. And we should not do this rashly, which is one reason when someone joins our church, we renew our covenant with one another as an assembly. We don't take this covenant lightly. There is, in a sense, a word that is given that we will give ourselves in responsibility to one another as members of the body of Christ. And again, we're not sinless. God forgives and He restores and strengthens us in our weakness. But there is a deep commitment here that should not be taken rashly. In a sense, there is a reflection here of what takes place in baptism. Uh, Often, and it's not essential, but often we ask those who come into the waters of baptism as a candidate, we ask them, is it your commitment to live for Christ the rest of your days? There's a, a vow, in a sense, that is taken there. A statement that I belong to Christ, that I am serving Christ, that I will give my life to Him, that I have given my life to Him, and I intend to stand for Him by His grace. There is a covenant there. There is a statement there, a promise in a sense that's given. Or we could even think of the Lord's Supper, the ongoing rite of the church. An announcement of our devotion to Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, takes place at the table. We say, this is my word, this is my commitment, this is my vow to live for Christ, that He is mine, that I am His, that forever I will serve Him by His grace. And we come confessing our sins at the Lord's table. But we come to that table understanding that there is a commitment. God prizes this, and that's very clear as we consider this passage. But far more importantly, Leviticus 27 points us to the redemptive work of Jesus. Over and over again, this is happening. Leviticus once again channels us towards certain concepts that are essential for our salvation. We absolutely need this steerage and we need this foundation so that we know who Christ is and what He's done. By teaching us that some things can be redeemed... Leviticus channels us in this chapter to understand that there's a few things that cannot be redeemed. What cannot be redeemed? It begins to come out of the page at us and stand there in light, so to speak. What cannot be redeemed is clean, sacrificial animals. Verse 9. What cannot be redeemed is firstborn sacrifices Verse 26, what cannot be redeemed are devoted things. Think on that. Meditate on that. Equipped with that revelation, we go in our mind's eye to an eerily darkened day in the spring of the year. Outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth hangs bruised, bleeding on a Roman cross. Jesus hangs there as the God 
devoted, firstborn lamb of God. Ordained to bear bear the cost. Ordained to bear the death penalty of our sin. And without reading too much into it to make the connection where it's not intended biblically, but, but to see the point here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he pray? Would it be possible? Will you please take this cup away? In a sense, Jesus prays in the Garden, Redeem me. Redeem me, ransom me from this. And we know the conclusive answer there in the garden, but certainly on the cross when he prays out, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hang here unredeemed. In a manner of speaking, Jesus asked, that the Father redeem him, ransom him from the position of bearing our sin. But on the cross of torture and shame, the Son has to cry out, You've not done it. You've forsaken me. We'll never plumb the depths of that conversation, of that prayer, of that agony but it does certainly teach us that the Son was not redeemed by the Father who had devoted Him to destruction. Jesus was not redeemed so that you could be. Jesus was not redeemed so that you could be. We who trust in Jesus crucified to pay the penalty of our sins. We who trust in Jesus risen from the dead in victory over sin and death and hell. We are redeemed. We're ransomed. We are not redeemed with silver. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hannah did not redeem Samuel, who served God's purposes for the sanctification of Israel, and Jesus was not redeemed by the Father in order to serve God's purposes in redeeming His people from sin and hell by the shed blood of Christ. It's no museum piece. Leviticus 27 is God's heartbeat. It's our redemption. And we praise Christ. Let's pray. Our Savior, we know not how to do it, Effectively, we thank you for the promise of your word that the Spirit of God groans in our behalf. 
For we know not how to put into words what you have accomplished in redemption history. And what you've accomplished, we trust in our lives. We trust. We put our faith and our hope in Christ crucified and risen because we see that through the centuries your revelation has pointed us to Him. Father, we praise You. In a prayer that's heart-wrenching, that you did not redeem your son. We praise you, Jesus, for trusting the Father and taking our wrath, being that devoted Lamb of God to stand in the place of we who are sinners to rescue and redeem us from our sin. We thank you. And Lord, while our prayers and our songs prove so insufficient of your praise, we thank you that you are liberating our hearts from self-dependence and self-focus and self-love to love you and to trust you. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In a unique way here, this church gathered thanks you, praises you, exalts in your being for our redemption. We praise you in the name of our Savior.